Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's Labor Day weekend, which means we have a holiday clips episode for you. It features Vanessa German. German is one of six artists featured in Beyond Granite, a series of installations on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. The exhibition, which was curated by Paul Farber and Salamisha Tillett for Monument Lab, is on view through September 18th, 2024. German's work, of Thee We Sing, considers Marian Anderson's 1939 performance on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, near which German's work is installed. Two other artists included in the exhibition have been featured on the Man podcast in recent years, Tiffany Chung and Wendy Redstar. You can find links to those episodes on the show page at manpodcast.com. Vanessa German recorded in 2022, after the break. Chicago Performs begins next week at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. Don't miss this annual festival of live arts celebrating the wealth of innovative work being made by Chicagoans. Witness the city's groundbreaking performance artists in action from September 7th through 10th at the MCA. Get 20% off when you buy tickets to all Chicago Performs performances. Learn more by visiting mcachicago.org. Support comes from Getty, presenting the groundbreaking new exhibition, Alfredo Bolton, looking at Venezuela, 1928 to 1978, on view through January 7, 2024. Considered one of the most important champions of modern art and art history in Venezuela, Alfredo Bolton is shockingly underrecognized outside his home country until now. The exhibition explores Bolton from several angles, including his photographs of Venezuelan people and landscapes, connections to artists of his time, and his involvement in the development of art history in Venezuela. Experience the show in both English and Spanish, and enjoy additional programming, including a film screening and live jazz performance. Learn more and make free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Becoming Van Leo, the first international survey of the late Armenian-Egyptian photographer. Working under a pseudonym, the artist known as Van Leo rose to prominence as one of the Arab world's most celebrated studio photographers from the 1940s to the 1960s. The exhibition follows his career into the 1990s and includes many works on public view for the very first time. Becoming Van Leo is on view at The Hammer from July 15th to November 5th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Fifty years ago, celebrated San Diego-based artist Eleanor Anton staged and photographed 100 boots on their cross-country trip from Solano Beach to New York City. A new exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego includes the 51 postcards that document the boots' journey. Also on view is work by the collective My Barbarian, whose layered performances continue Anton's spirit of social critique and playfulness. Opening September 21st on view through February 2024. See Eleanor Anton and My Barbarian at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. Plan your visit by going to mcasd.org. And we're back. Vanessa German, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's really good to be here with you all and to uh, have the opportunity to share. I thought we might start with your mother, Sandra Keat German, who was a quilter and, and quite a well-known quilter. 
is there a relationship between quilting and your use of your interest in assemblage? Yes, there is. I, but more so in the soul of the work, in the deepest soil of the work, which is the space of like inhabiting like with fullness, my identity as an artist, which I watched my mother do. And I watched my mother gather her materials really thoughtfully and craft a space for making with great care and intention. And so in the foundation of my existence as an artist is the recognition that it's a real life. It's a real thing to do. And it is a place of power and a place of focus. So I, I remember when my mother moved from mostly making clothing and costumes to making quilts and she would set up a quilt frame in the living room that took up a lot of space. And it would be our job as little kids to get underneath the quilt frame with Tupperware containers filled with safety pins and pin the backing of the quilt and the batting and the quilt top together. So I experienced my mother in different dimensions, piecing together towards a whole, towards a cohesive aesthetic experience of the quilt, but also a cohesive dimensional experience. Though the aesthetic experience meeting the totality of the process, meeting my mother's physical, emotional, spiritual, and political weight and presence as invested into the piecing of the quilt and the wholeness of the object. So that dimensional process and practice is the soil, the most fertile soil of my practice in assemblage of piecing a thing together, of gathering the materials, gathering the ingredients, gathering them with the like intellectual hands, spiritual hands, emotional hands, political hands, gathering them in a space of mystery, not necessarily knowing where objects are going to go or what they're going to do, but understanding through the technology of my heart and the technology of my soul that an object is a yes place, that it is a place of rightness for my work, and then also gathering materials for the engineering part of my practice. And that what I experienced in my mother's practice and in the fullness of her practice and in the fullness of her objects is that everything is available. That's a cool idea. Do you still have and live with your mother's quilt? I have, I think, where I am at the new place, I have one of my mother's quilts. And I got a message yesterday from a museum that showed some of my work with my mother's work probably five or six years ago. And they never sent my mother's quilts back to me. So I got a really apologetic message from a curator yesterday saying that we found your mother's quilts very carefully stored in the back of storage. And we are so sorry. And my heart just, it was such a complicated moment that I think she had recently died. 
that show went up and I was, I had a conversation with my siblings this weekend and I said, like, I would like whoever has some of mommy's bed quilts, like to please send me, like, I would like one or two of the quilts that she made for our beds. And to know that I have quilts that I feel like they had kind of been lost that are going to be returned to me later this week. It is, and at this, the new place where I am, it is so right and it's so special. And especially because I was just asking my siblings about getting some more quilts this weekend. In 2020, you made a work called Mother Mother. One of the things that is especially consistent, I think, across your work is your use of, of booming, loud, thunderous color. I think sometimes with artists who work in assemblage, you know, say, say take like a Bruce Connor works made in the 1950s or a Betty Saar works made in the 1960s, you know, over 50 or 60 years, some of that color is faded because that's what happens. But in your work, not only is the color loud, but you often use materials that ensure it will remain so going forward. And so I wanted to ask you about the color in Mother Mother and the way it just shouts. So when I was making that work, I listened to a lot of audio books when I'm working. And I was listening to an audio book called like The Darkest Child. And it brought up a lot of these really sort of intimate textures of being raised by a mother who was incredibly genius and incredibly creative, but also was a really light-skinned Black woman growing up in the South in Jim Crow. And so there were, with a mother who had my grandmother had like extreme mental illness and was institutionalized for a lot of my mother's life. And so that work, Mother, Mother, it's not just about my mother. It is about my mother, but it's also about being mothered through very intense trauma and very intense systemic oppression that the resistance against which becomes dangerous. Like my mother's radical reach for her own true liberty, for her own soul's right to breathe was dangerous for her. You know, my mother was one of the people that the police handcuffed at the University of Wisconsin and they handcuffed all the students in to a truck in the back of a U-Haul truck and closed the door. And so I think about my mother doing the best that she could to raise us through really painful, violent, intense trauma in a time where people weren't talking about trauma and they weren't talking about self-care and they weren't talking about social healing and how my mother visited that trauma upon us, but also really worked to raise us in a way that we would have the capacity within our own political, cultural, and spiritual prowess to escape from the things that she could not escape from. And 
it is, you know, when people really loved my mother and she meant a great deal to people all around the country. And I hear from those people and I understand their place of deep care and connection for my mother. And I see my mother in a really expansive horizon of being, but my mother visited a lot of violence upon us. And so that work contends with being raised and mothered through generations of really sort of sometimes unstable mothers and mothers who really just had to do the very, very best that they could, or some mothering that couldn't even be in touch with the capacity to do the best you can because of mental illness and trauma. So that work is a reckoning work inside of the volumes of story and the volumes of living uh, presence of the mothering of our mother's mothering. That's awesome. That's really great. We'll, we'll have images of the work on manpodcast.com, of course. Also, just really quickly, because that's another part. Color is very important to me, and I'm using color and saturated fields of color and like sort of sometimes these like heroic drips of gold for their speaking presence, for their capacity to be absorbed into emotional wavelength. So in places that language cannot bridge the challenge of really understanding that those saturated colors and the boldness of colors and the talking of color can be a place of invitation and reception for human beings who do have sight when encountering the work. I have a feeling color will come up a, a, a few more times as we, we talk here. There's one other note about Mother Mother I want to make sure to mention. In a lot of your work, not always, but, but a heck of a lot of it, the figures you construct are elevated. So they are not on a plinth in the traditional, you know, 19th century European sculpture kind of way, but they're on something, you know, a, a plank held aloft by two chairs, for example. And in this work, in Mother Mother, the the central and dominant female in the work is standing on a box and on the side of the box are the words immense value, which is just, it, it, it's actually the only place in the work where there isn't color and the words thunder. <laughs> that is, I feel like immense value was baking powder. Oh, is that what it is? <laughs> All right, I was yeah. wondering. So like a brand name, you mean? Yeah, uh, that's an advertising box, you know, and I have always been interested in like my grandmother would say that she was a domestic 
And she had to explain to me what that was like in living action. Like she was making the biscuits for another family. She was doing the laundry and starching the clothes for the husband of another man's family to make their life livable, to give them a life of ease and a life of cleanliness and a life of comfort. That was her muscle, her sweat and her labor so that she could also make biscuits for her own family. So that immense value baking powder box is the truth of the dimensional labor of the women in my family and how it would not be valued. Their bodies weren't valued. They were often not as a descendant of enslaved Africans on this land. It comes with that the rake of land of what that is and the rupture of what that is. So I'm in, when I'm using advertising boxes, I am in conversation with the sort of history of a black woman's labor on this land, the value, the lack of value of that labor. But I'm also in incorporating and integrating into the work, the presence of the secret labor, the presence of the secret work, the presence of the psychic and the spiritual labor that maintained the wholeness of that Black woman's body and the wholeness then of her being and contributing that wholeness to the wholeness of her family and her community. And to name it, you know, sometimes it works that I can find objects that speak to that magic and that power. And a lot of times it's on domestic items for domestic use, like immense value baking powder or the magic, those old soap powder boxes that have like the Batman pow, you know, thing. But it'll say, it'll say new magic, the the brightest bright, the cleanest clean, you know, and so I'm appropriating that language towards the labor and the secret labor of the work of the women in the line of my family. And the elevation is also in bringing in, in, into the work because the work is bringing into the work just the layers of history that exist in our bodies. I'm thinking about epigenetics. I'm thinking about how much information, like how much genetic information is in our bodies. And so I'm elevating in reference to the ways that when African people were brought off of the ships that they were stolen on, they were brought into ports and they were elevated on these platforms to have their bodies checked. And so that is a reference, but it is also literally putting a figure on a pedestal and it is also elevating it beyond the human body, beyond the figure, beyond the work of art, beyond any capacity of language to trap a single understanding about that. It is that it is like, it is risen. It is a lifted up thing. We have something called the lifting up song where you elevate the wholeness and the totality of a being to the expansiveness of the sky in recognition that even the sky is always changing. So it's a way that the work is entered into the simultaneity of time in that place of the lifting up song where you lift up to the sky. The sky is ever expansive and is also ever changing and is thunderous then in its power and presence. And that I am 
soaking the work in that place of resonance also with elevation. One of the things that, for me anyway, really distinguishes your use of assemblage and sculpture is that your work is is very often narrative. You know, there's something happening, a story happening, an event happening, and you've made that happening and invited the viewer to see it. And so I know that's kind of abstract. So examples I'm thinking of are, are work you made in 2016 called I Am Armed, I Am an Army, or a 2017 work you showed at the Mattress Factory in Pittsburgh, back when you live in Pittsburgh, called Sometimes We Cannot Be With Our Bodies. There's a period after each word, which is why I'm reading it that way. All of which is to ask, you know, are you intentionally creating narrative scenes of action? And if so, why that's important to you? So with those installations, that's intentional, yes. So partially, I think about when I was a kid and my mom would drop us off at the museum because it was like a really safe place for us to be in the summertime in L.A. She'd drop us off when the museum opened and pick us up when the museum closed. And I think about the ways that like in natural history museums, they would set up those dioramas, you know, (laughs) you would see the saber toothed tiger and the, you know, and but it would take you throughout time. And I think about the way that the museum told me when I was a little kid, what was important and how, like, that's one of the other things with like lifting things up, elevating things in my work. It was like the museum was telling me something with that elevation also. And so there is that sense of experiencing work in a way that is moving and is acknowledging the power of story. So I'm a story person as a human being, and there are certain ways that I have experienced people talking about story and me being involved in story that is really powerful. One is just considering the story field that we all exist in as human beings on the planet Earth. And the other is this idea that the future belongs to the best story and that the universe is made of stories. So I am a story person. I'm a writer. I'm a performer. And the, and I'm a theater person. So that theatricality and the narrative insertion, that's intentional. And especially in those installation works, because I'm making power figures. I'm making work for the living realm. I'm making work for the technology of the human heart. I'm making work to exist beyond the moment of the site. I'm making work to exist to, to walk away with people and to live inside of them. And for me, the way to do that, in addition to all of the, you know, the material choices I'm making is by putting a story in the room that people breathe in and you walk out with that story inside of you also. But it's a living story that continues to add and to develop as like the humans move through the world. And So, yes, purposeful. Your work is often full of references to African art historical practice, Galede masks, for example, or or you mentioned power figures a moment ago, Nkisi power figures. And so a number of those African objects were made and are made to be used in performative events, you know, be they a procession or a parade or a, yeah, a ritual, you know, whatever form that ritual takes. Are you 
I don't know, Americanizing or, or mindfully bringing into your practice the ways in which those objects are used? So, so not just bringing those objects into your practice and jumping off from them, but are you mindful of building into your practice the full totality of why those objects were made and how they've been used? No, I don't do that. Ah. And so here's the thing. If I'm using a made object that is like a sort of, I don't know the best way to say this. So, Well, obviously I didn't either in the way I phrased the question. (laughs) Yeah, I have, there's a piece that's at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art called Souvenir of Our Trip. And it's got two colonial figures that are made in the style of these carved colonial figures from West Africa, right? But the figures that I'm using were made in Taiwan and they're resin. And so one of the things, so I'm not making a reference to the original object solely and its use, but what one of the things that I'm bringing up is what exists and what has been, what objects have been made to exist in the place of the rupture. You know, there are so many things that I do not know about, like I can only chase my family line back to Louisiana, to a plantation. And no, I cannot chase my family line across the ocean. And so in the rupture of people who have like a ruptured family line, there are all of these souvenir objects. There are all of these things that have been made to bridge the place of rupture. And when, you know, as an African in America, as you know, when I went to Africa and I'm at the green market in South Africa, there were all these objects that Africans were telling me, like, Kunta Kinte wore that. Like, that is the the tiger tooth that was around Kunta Kinte's neck or Nelson Mandela held this purse. Like there were ways that even when I was in Africa, African people were engaging in capitalism on behalf of like their life, but also recognizing that there's a place of rupture that many African-Americans want to fill and that that work is being taken up around the world. So there's, when I'm using something in my work, it is never an object that has been danced. It is never an object that has been worn in ritual. It is always like third generation removed from that. It's often something that has been made for African-Americans to buy, to feel connected to Africa. And that's a very specific thing. Like in Sad Rapper, the show that's in Kasman now, there's a Yoruba priest hat that I found at TJ Maxx in Western North Carolina. I couldn't believe it. I was like, why is this Yoruba hat here? Why is this in TJ Maxx? And it was being so, even this object that was made for commercial design market, it was being treated so poorly at TJ Maxx. Like it was, <laughs> it was so dusty and all of the beads had gotten trapped in the metal shelving. So I had to break it to get it apart. But to me, what's being, there's that object exists in a very specific way. And it is not a thing, anything that has anything to do with Yoruba. It doesn't have anything to do with Africa. It has something to do with us here. 
And so when I'm using, you know, there's another piece in Sad Rapper called The Envy. And there are seven masks that I bought off of a street corner in New York when I was going to Madison Square Park. And I know that those masks are made for design. They're made for decoration. They're made to communicate texture and they're made to communicate totally different things. And so I am not using them in respect to whatever is their original historical, cultural, spiritual reference at all. But I'm asking them to do different cultural, historical, spiritual work now. Because the work that I make, I'm always asking the work to do something, which is why oftentimes it is so theatrical. It is performative. It is sometimes loud. You know, sometimes I walk into rooms with like certain bodies of work and there's, there's a volume to the work that I don't always experience when it's all in studio being made. And so, but I'm still, what I am in the practice of is asking the work to do something and investing love and investing heart, investing magic, investing miracle, investing soul, investing the invisible realms into the object. And that's like the closest connection that I can have because I didn't know that what I started out making had anything to do with the Congo or Nkisi. Somebody had to tell me that that was something that had been happening for thousands of years. I did not know that. There's an interview you did with Bomb Magazine maybe seven or eight years ago in which you tell that story. We'll include a link to it on on the show page at manpodcast.com. I think what you just said about activation and the intensity that objects have sounds a lot like something I've heard Renee Stout talk about over the years. Mm-hmm. I love Renee. Yeah, and I know you two know each other. And so I think that exists in her work too, in a very different way. So like your work often thunders from across a room and with Renee Stout's work, you've got to walk right up to it. And the more time you spend understanding, you know, why a little bottle is there on a table or whatever, the, the, the more you understand the implications and intensities of that specificity. That's what I think about with Renee too. Sometimes bottles on tables. Yeah. And <laughs> like there's a subtle call. There's a subtle but steady call of her work. Oh, that's a skill, right? It just yanks you across the room to it. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of whispering magic. You know, that's that subtle, consistent call. That's why I think about the way that people have said that Thich Nhat Hanh moved like a tractor trailer and a cloud at the same time. And so like her work is, well, also it's like her. She's very powerful. She's a very, very powerful human being. And her work is dimensionally powerful. Yeah, I'm, I'm a giant fan you know, speaking of, of other assemblage artists, assemblage has a just fantastically rich history and particularly a rich American history. And for me, sometimes that history gets flattened a bit. So, you know, Bruce Connor is not at all like Betty Sarr, right? So is there a particular American tradition of assemblage that you think of yourself as fitting within? No, not only on my own, but there's not a particular tradition. And especially if we're just 
you know, locating it in America, feel like assemblage is kind of human technology and it's vast and it's not con- like I wouldn't contain it within any geographical or like art historical timeline. I feel like that is like, I feel like it has its convenience, but given where we are as human beings on the planet, it's like too reductive. But I love Bruce Connor though. I love Bruce Connor. I, 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 I said a little haunty. A little, a little terrifying. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, maybe cause I grew up during the cold war as I guess you did too. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and Bruce Connor's perpetual uh, fear of fear of the bomb is like, I don't know if I was afraid of the bomb, but I know, I knew I was aware of the uncertainty that was the superpower context contest. Can I ask a question really quick about that? Yeah, sure. Do you remember some of the first times you heard the phrase mutually assured destruction? Oh yeah. And I, I, yeah, me um, too. yeah I mean, and, and to this day, like, the first thing I thought of when you said that phrase, and it's always the first thing I thought of, and it's Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> you know, the movie, the... Um, I've never seen it. Dr. Strangelove is a movie about the absurdity. It, it's got Peter Sellers playing nine different roles. It's about the absurdity of mutually assured destruction. So, yeah, and, and, and it's a movie that I think could fairly be said to either, you know, partially come out of Bruce, Bruce Connor and, and, and certainly... You know, it sits on a shelf with with Bruce Connor. You know, one of the things that very often to almost always in your work is a focus on the body. I mean, lots of assemblage artists, um, lots of artists who do sculpture and installation are not anywhere near as interested in in the body as as you are. So I'm I'm sure that must be a conscious, determined choice. And I wonder why the body has remained so central and important to you. For me... I think of one that one of the things I'm working with is life and is human life and the scale of human life in a relationship to the systems that we've constructed, constructed in relationship to nature, in relationship to time. And I'm also interested in the secret worlds that the body contains through like our brain and nervous system. And for me, I made a decision that the body was, this is the way that I said it, like at the time, like almost 20 years ago, I was like, the body will be my canvas. And then I also want to say that for me, as coming from people whose bodies were picked apart, and whose bodies were so visited, like, you know, in recent, in very recent, like, historical memories, such, like, incredible cruelty and violence visited upon our bodies. I had to do a lot of work as a child, as a Black child, as a human being, to recognize my body as its own. and that is ongoing work of pulling back in every single ingredient that I can muster to hold and to understand the mystery of my humanity while in this body. So one of the characteristics of your address of the body is that your figures are always or almost always pretty close to 
human size, right? I mean, you're not, you're not giving us 40-foot people. <laughs> and so I would guess that part of your consideration in how to present bodies is tied to making them roughly human size. And I wonder why that part of it seems to be, is or seems to be important to you. Well, that wasn't necessarily important to me. Like I began making work in a state of extreme poverty with very little access to resources or tools. And I worked with what I could find. And so from working with what I could find and that work allowing me to add tools to my studio practice, things have grown, but they could never grow past a place of a residential sized doorway because that's all where I was working, I would work to the extent of my resources. So for me, that was like not being a person with a vehicle. And if I made an object, I knew that I would have to be able to carry that object on the city bus. So that's what I would do. Like I would put an object that might be two and a half feet tall next to me on a seat on the city bus. And I would have to take it to wherever what little show was being juried on the bus, one object at a time. And then I, you know, for a sad rapper, I could build things to a place where then partially completed, we had to move them to a space, a shared space that had a garage door so that we could get them out of the door. So I had always just done the best that I could to work to the extent of my resources. There's a story I've read you told in at least one or two other interviews where when you were making work in your home studio in Pittsburgh, you always found it kind of vaguely heartbreaking. I think that was your word to have to take an object apart to get it out of the building and to wherever it was going that you, you. Yeah. I didn't understand that because I could stand, like I just, I, it just wasn't present with me that because I could walk down the stairs to get to the basement and I could stand at full height in the basement didn't mean that I could get an object out of that doorway. And so, yeah, that was like crushing. It was crushing to have to, and we couldn't, you can't take it apart. Like we had to break things. And that's when I started working on the front porch. That's when I started working outside and I took over the whole house because, you know, that was, it was heartbreaking and it was also depressing. Like I had to live with that. <laughs> I had to live with that. I, you know, it's 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 like there's a key difference between people who look at art and think about art for a living and people who make art for a living. I, you know, being being a looker, I never, I shouldn't say never. I I forget about mechanics. <laughs> yeah, and also like people, like when you have the resources and you have space, you can do different things with it. And like, can we look at a spectrum of work and respect that artists are, you know, that there are limitations imposed upon the artists. And it's just, sometimes it's a very, very human place. It's very simple and very human. A few minutes ago, I think we both kind of obliquely referenced that you write and perform poetry. In fact, when you lived in Pittsburgh, for example, you wrote and read a poem at the inauguration of Mayor Bill Peduto. What is the relationship between poetry and your sculptural practice? Well, like 
So I fluster around at the beginning of this question because the most honest way that I can answer it is that I am not living my life with separation. So if you've listened to any interviews that I do, I try to make it a point to distinguish that I am involved fully and expansively in my entire existence as an artist. And so whatever is available to the limbs of my being as an artist, I will reach towards, towards expression, towards experimentation, towards mystery, towards building the thing. So anything that comes through the window of my imagination, of my heart, of my, of like the visceral sort of knuckly need of the artist that is the center of my soul, I'm going to reach towards that. And so that means that I'm experiencing the same process over and over and over again with just different materials. Language is a material. Language, um, poetry is a sculptural form for me. And I still like invest this place of soul. I invest Uh, research into it. I invest a place of purpose into that. Like everything in my existence is sculptural. My relationships are sculptural. My relationship with my own body, my love relationships, my romantic relationships, my institutional relationships, I experience them all as sculptural. I experience like every ingredient, every conversation, every moment of eye contact, every smile, all of it exists for me as like an ongoing accumulative sculpture. So when I'm working with language, I am working with it sculpturally and I'm working with it intentionally and I'm working with it lovingly and within a place of purpose and in a place of freedom and a place to experience liberty. And so oftentimes any work of art that I've made, I can also perform that work. People just don't ask me to do it. Like it doesn't get programmed when there's a big body of work at a museum, you know, I will offer that to people, you know, I offer it. And sometimes I've gotten to do it where I do these walk and talks through the space. And like any human being that's in the group can ask me to stop and perform a work that is there. And it's a lot of fun. They just don't choose it often, you know, the people, they want people to sit down, I guess, in theaters and Okay, so you know how in the art world, you know, we're all used to seeing title cards where there's the title of the work, the year it was made, and then a list of materials, you know, oil on canvas. Sometimes in your list of materials in a work, you know, you'll you'll use 135 words. (laughs) Are those poems? Sometimes more so than other times. What they are, are the truth. What it is, is the, the true materials that are visible and invisible that went into that work. So, but there are times when I will like expound upon experiential material in the work. And it is a lot more poetic than me just saying, though the police killed somebody outside of my studio, which is some, which has to be an ingredient in the sculptures that were in the studio when that happened, because it, it shakes the studio, like your walls are literally shaking, you know? So And then other times I will give more depth and more information about invisible materials, which can make it a lot more poetic. My favorite example, if I get to have a favorite, is the Work Boots Blackbird from 2021, the materials list, which includes, quote, Toni Morrison telling us about the flying Africans, comma, the breeze from the wings of the flying Africans, comma, and, you know, many more words from there. 
So just to give people an example, we'll have an image of that work and the complete list of materials on, uh, on, 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 on the show page. In a related story, one of your frequent moves, if you will, is to reference emotion, is to reference emotion both in your work, you know, in the object itself, in the three-dimensional object itself, but also in its title, in, in the list of materials. You, you foreground emotion, gosh, as much as like just about anybody I can think of. So maybe, for example, a 2019 sculpture titled Hypersensitive Feeling Machine Body Soul Emotion Volume Control. You know, it's really making sure the viewer can't miss emotion as being central to the work and the experience of the work. So was that always a goal or a priority or was addressing emotion and let's face it in contemporary art, the forces of commerce and academic intellectualism can insist on purging art of feeling (laughs) is insisting on emotion, something that just always came naturally to you or did you have to find permission for it to do it in one way or another? So I had people tell me not to be emotional or not to express sensitivity through my work. They said it was dangerous and that people wouldn't take me seriously. But at the same time, I was experiencing in the culture these massive acts of public violence where there was sort of this kind of celebration for and a sense of reward given, especially I experienced this through social media when people were unemotional about it. And I was like, you're fucking kidding me. Like, this is devastating. This is traumatic. And there is, is there no safe place and is there no is there no safe public space of grace to hold and bear this emotion and to do that in a way that has a full circle so that we are not compounding um like have emotional constipation into other enormous acts of violence and also coming up as a you know an emotional being all the different times and ways that people told me that there wasn't space for it, but then there would be a punitive response to like a, to expressing emotion. And so at, there was a time when I really identified something that was for me called the epidemic of fearlessness in this country. Like people were just over black people getting killed by the police. They were just over feeling or any expression of things. And then having drastically different like social experiences after large like public catastrophes. But there were times that I definitely identified that space would be made for emotional response to things happening to people with certain kinds of bodies in this world. So intentionally to make honest space for what was real material and real ingredient, I began to like intentionally insert the emotional spaces. And sometimes it's hate and sometimes it's rage. And that was also as a, you know, a fat black queer woman, the uh, sometimes the only safe place that I could say that I was outraged and that I was consumed with rage and that I was like frustrated with rage would be in the material section of my sculpture. And then that rage became less dangerous for oftentimes white people or white institutions who 
were presenting the work or, you know, like it became something that they didn't have to worry about calling the police or security about because the rage was just contained between commas on the material list for an object that wasn't going to get up and actually scream or cry or need anything, <laughs> you know? And so it was like personal, but also in response to what I call the epidemic of fearlessness. Because I was definitely always invited to feel bad when things happen to certain people. But I was not often invited to feel bad or to be comforted in feeling or to be even validated in emotional response to things that happen to Black folks. I think that might be a pretty good two-sentence definition of much of the white-led art museum sector. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's really, I, I appreciate that answer a lot. I, there's, there's a lot there to, there's a lot there. I have two more things I want to ask about. One of your more frequent moves is the use of disembodied eyes in three-dimensional objects, two-ish dimensional objects. For example, a year or two ago, made a Serena Madonna out of a Serena Williams Vogue magazine cover, and it included disembodied eyes. I think Mother Mother that we were talking about earlier has two sets of disembodied eyes. Why disembodied eyes? What, what, what do they do for you and how do you like to use them? Bringing into the work that the work is not just an object, it exists in the simultaneity of time. It exists in a long line of sight and that sight is present. So thinking of ancestral sight, thinking of also, depending on the color of the eyes, they're like, if they're blue eyes, I'm bringing into the gaze, bringing the gaze into it, you know, the into the work and it's staring back at you. It's gazing out at everyone. But a lot of the times it is the eye of your soul. It is the presence of enduring soul. It brings into the work, the eye of nature, like the connective, the eyes that connect us all. And so for me, sometimes it's secret language. It's secret work. It is the work that I often will not ever get asked in a museum setting or in an interview about um, the soul of the work and how I am activating love inside of the work. That is a very cool idea. I also, you know, they're also just fun to find within the work. And, 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 and I found that as I look at your work and I find them, I'm then prompted to reckon with them. Right. I mean, you know, because it's like something is looking out at you. It is a, a human prompt to reckon with both the object, but also what the eyes mean in the context of that object. Finally, I suspect quite a number of our listeners know that you have the most generous, exuberant, thoughtful Instagram account on earth. <laughs> I often read your IG posts and think to myself, gosh, I wish I could write like that. Really? Because you're a professional. I'm definitely... <laughs> well, you're a professional writer, too. Nobody's ever asked me to read it, you know, the inauguration of a public figure. Yeah. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> yeah. I, I, something tells me it'll be a cold day in hell. One of the constants in your Instagram account is you jumping. And I mean that, you know, for listeners who haven't seen your IG account, we'll have a link to it on the show page. You know, you literally have these posts in which you are jumping exuberantly. 
why? What, what, what about jumping as uh, an expression and as a way of sharing yourself works for you? So like the history of me and jumping is I'm fat and I'm also like, and have been my whole fat life super athletic, you know, like I got offered a college scholarship to play tennis. I was a gymnast and a cheerleader and I could always jump higher with more flexibility (laughs) than all the other cheerleaders. Right. And so, but it also really feels amazing to feel like you're flying. And so that's like the history of me jumping. I can jump and I can jump flexibly. So I was driving back across the country and we were at Yosemite and we had to get back across the country on a like time limit, which really didn't feel great. And that sense of that sense of like expansive, explosive, ecstatic joy of being in the Redwood Forest or being at Yosemite in the valley or and it's just too much. It's too too much for your eyes. It's too much for language. It's you can't run your fingers over all of Half Dome. You can't. You you can't like drink all of the Bridal Veil waterfall. But you can like have a split moment of ecstatic flight that says yes to all of the things in the universe that are saying yes at the same time. And for me, I just, you know, coming across the country, being close to nature, being on the Great Salt Flats, being in Red Rocks, like that is, and because we were also like, we would be driving through these amazing places. I'd be like, let's get out and jump. And we would stop the car and I would, and we would all like everybody in the car would jump, you know, and we would, we'd be like, okay, let's get back in the car. And so that was our way of joining in like the universal yes of life and nature and the joy of being able to be like so awake in a moment of ecstasy that that's what we have is a leaping moment of flight. Mm, That's awesome. It's also, you know, a heck of a move for a sculptor, right? I mean, sculptures are governed by, by holding still and by gravity and the jump, the jumping posts are, you know, the antithesis of all that. (laughs) And they're great fun. Vanessa German, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.